The Old Testament text is the 144th Psalm. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hands of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God, upon the ten-stringed harp I will play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is the hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May, it, may there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. The word of the Lord. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Did that first line in this psalm strike you as a little bit, well, martial in character? Should. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Christianity is a fighting religion. Let me just say that again so it sinks in. Christianity is a fighting religion. Now, I know that uh, what probably comes to your mind when someone says something like that is, what about blessed are the peacemakers? I mean, we have it right there in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, shouldn't we at least feel a little uncomfortable with associating our faith with martial, you know, sort of the martial virtues. There have been efforts in the past to kind of expunge from the Christian faith uh, any allusion to conflict and war. Um, before they, uh, folks uh, who were today trying to expunge references to God using the male pronoun, uh, before they did that or resorted to that, they tried to get every reference to martial sort of uh, notions uh, expunged from the hymnal and from the Bible even. Um, you know, that's why you very rarely say, sing, uh, you know, uh, Onward Christian Soldiers, for example, in many churches today. But uh, the problem with trying to remove all of the martial uh, character or references from Scripture uh, is that you end up with a very small Bible at the end of the day. It's uh, kind of like what happened with Thomas Jefferson. Are you familiar with Jefferson's Bible? 
Jefferson uh, was not all that keen on the supernatural, and he wanted to preserve sort of the, the sort of the moral core of New Testament Christianity and get rid of everything that was supernatural in character. And so he took a razor blade to his Bible and cut out everything that referred to some kind of supernatural event. You know, something else inconsequential as like the resurrection, for example. And uh, you can actually see his Bible today at the Smithsonian uh, Institute uh, in Washington, D.C., the, in the Smithsonian Institution. It's there on display, and it's very small. I think you get my point. Now, pacification is also peacemaking. Now, when we use the term pacification, often what that implies is that we're going to use military force to bring the peace. There's going to be some exercise of power in order to bring about the peace that we long for. And uh, what you have, really, with you know, peacemaking in this spirit is that it's uh, actually uh, requisite uh, and pretty significant or central to the act of pacification to use force. There are problems with pacifism. Uh, pacifism, of course, being the philosophy that uh, we should never resort to violence in order to pursue the good. And people who apply that consistently uh, depend upon other people who don't pretty much all the time. Uh, you saw this in uh, Pennsylvania during the colonial period where the pacifist Quakers relied upon the warlike Presbyterians to keep the peace on the frontier. <laughs> and uh, that continues to this day. People who uh, are very sort of circumspect when it comes to this matter of pac uh, you know, living uh, as pacifists tend to live in very strong and militarily sort of impenetrable and uh, difficult to defeat countries. Uh, there's a reason for this, because those are the places where you can live that way. When you find yourself in other situations where that's not even like feasible, you tend to leave if you're a consistent pacifist. Now, one of the things that kings were supposed to do is wage war. Were you aware of that? Uh, when we think about the Israelites uh, there in 1 Samuel and they're hankering after a king, they wanted a king for two things. And by the way, this is kind of the job description of kings. Uh, the first thing that a king is supposed to do is judge his own people, administering justice. That's the job or one of the jobs of a king. That's why even to this day when we refer to the courts, we're actually alluding to the kingly court in which the king would sit as judge and judge his own people. And we see, you know, episodes in Scripture where that, where that happens. Um, but... Uh, his other job was to make sure that the bad guys who are not a part of the kingdom don't get to come into the kingdom and take away everybody's uh, stuff. And so a king's job was to exercise martial virtue in defense of his people and to wage war. And this is exactly what the Israelites uh, come to Samuel and say. We need someone to judge us and to wage war in our behalf. Like all the kingdoms of the world where they have kings who do this sort of thing. So if you recall, uh, Samuel is not too keen about uh, conceding, uh, you know, or sort of giving in to them and, and, and granting the request. But uh, he's told by the Lord himself, go ahead, let them have what they want, but just make sure they understand the costs that, it will, uh, that will come along with having a king. 
Now, one of the things I think it's worth uh, remembering is when there is a war, it doesn't matter whether or not you want there to be a war, there just simply is a war. And we find ourselves uh, in such a scenario. There is a cosmic war that is waging all around us. And we are actually part of that conflict, whether we want to be or not. And we have enemies, whether we want to have enemies or not. Have you ever had an enemy? I'm not talking about a strictly a spiritual enemy, but just like a real flesh and blood human being enemy that was just out to get you. I've had the misfortune of having a few enemies in the course of my life. Uh, and uh, it's not a pleasant thing. I wish it wasn't the case, but nevertheless, that can happen. And here in this psalm, uh, King David is singing about some real flesh and blood people who are out to get him, real enemies who want him to fail and want what he has and wants to, uh, and want to have uh, the kingdom that he has been given to oversee and protect. So there are real enemies that he has to deal with. And we see those enemies alluded to in verses uh, 8 and uh, 11. And there we see uh, David say, uh, with regard to those enemies, uh, deliver me from the many waters. And what does that mean? Well, he, he uh, elaborates, from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Now, this is an interesting allusion to the right hand because the right hand, historically, in many cultures around the world, is the hand that you're supposed to trust. The left hand is the hand you need to watch out for. So, what we have alluded to here is just forthright animosity. These are enemies who are out to get him. And again, uh, word for word, we see the same thing stated in verse 11. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. Traditionally, we as Christians have acknowledged that we as Christians have three enemies. And they're all liars. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. They're all liars. So we live in a world or a culture of lies. You get the lies kind of streamed at you all the time on the internet, and television, and radio, etc. And the basic pitch is that if you just do what we say, you'll be happy. Now, you know, are they really after you know, your happiness or are they after something else? Well, just the very way that it's put gives you a sense that uh, there's more going on here than meets the eye. They're not telling me everything that they're up to. But even beyond that, we live in a world uh, and in a, in a culture at the moment in which uh, an elaborate set of lies are, are, are largely uh, taught and believed and reinforced in our laws and in our institutions of higher learning and so forth. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of education and a lot of good sense to be able to kind of discern what's true and what's false with regard to all these messages that are being directed at us all the time. But uh, one of the things you can be absolutely certain of is that when it comes to the messages that are you know, directed at us by this culture of lies, eternal salvation in Christ is not 
what the message is. In other words, you know, you don't turn on the radio, you don't turn on the television, you don't turn on the, the computer and just have constantly streamed at you that. Uh, unless, of course, you're availing yourself of good ministries and listening to things that are intended to promote that truth. But broadly speaking, that's not the case. So we live in a world that's full of things that mislead us or messages that mislead us. I think that's pretty easy to acknowledge and to note. But the, the next liar is a little more difficult, well, not a little, a lot more difficult to deal with because what you're dealing with with this next liar is something that doesn't go away and is with you all the time, and it's the flesh. The inner traitor, that part of you that actually conspires with the world against your own best interests. And you need to be able to discern the messages that you tell yourself and, no, and, and note whether or not those messages that you're telling yourself are true or false. This is tough. You need some help. The good thing is, is that uh, we have God's Word to provide us with some, some guidance, and we have God's Spirit who resides with us and dwells with us and helps us and reinforces the truth. Nevertheless, there's this ongoing struggle we have with our own selves, this part of, this, this, this part of ourselves that really undermines our own interests and is out to, out to get us, destroy us. So, you know, so, you know here, here's, here's a way in which, you know, the, the flesh and the world conspire against you. Do you remember, this dates me, this dates me, I mean, but everybody that, you know, remembers popular radio in the 70s and 80s will remember this. How can it be wrong when it feels so right? Remember that, that song? I can't remember who sang it, and I don't want to be reminded. So don't even come up to me afterwards and say it was whomever. But the lie was that there you know, is something about you that you should utterly trust, and that's that impulse that you have to kind of give yourself over to your passions and desires uh, without any reference to what's right or wrong. You know, just do it. And of course, What's going on is the world, this larger culture that profits from you and me kind of buying into that stuff, is conspiring with that part of ourselves that really would like that to be true, even though deep down we know it's not the case. We know that it's false. So there's this collusion, this collusion that goes on constantly between what goes on outside of us and the world and the messages that are sent. And there's this, and this part of us that wants to believe the lies and tries to you know, talk us into and to accepting those lies. But behind it all is the father of lies, the devil. Um, so what we have with that reality, and there, there really is a devil, uh, you might believe or think that uh, intelligent, educated people should not believe in such a, uh, a being. But uh, I don't think that uh, it's a measure of intelligence whether or not you believe in the devil. Uh, in fact, it may be a measure of intelligence if you don't. Uh, you might actually be ignorant. Uh, that's actually a, a possibility. So you're actually not aware of something that's the case. But a malicious intelligence that's at work in the world that you and I are no match for. I mean, we're talking about a creature and it is a creature because it is a created entity, a created being, a creature who is a lot older than us 
and a lot smarter than us, and a lot more powerful than us, and against whom we have no hope if we had no Savior. That's what we're up against. We are in a war, a cosmic war that's waged around us and in us all the time. And we need God to deliver us. And that's what we see referred to here in verse 5. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters. Deliver us. Our Lord is a God of war. The name Yahweh was a uh, name that you know, might sound uh, sweet and airy, but was actually a, a, a name that uh, implied that God is a God of war. You're familiar with the term Lord of hosts, right? Like when I was, when I was a young Christian, I mentioned this a few times, you know, there were a number of words that Christians used that I just didn't know what to do with. You know, for example, yoke, you know, take my yoke upon you, you know, learn of me. I was like, what do eggs have to do with this? And, I had no, you know, sort of acquaintance with, you know, the yoke that an oxen would, would, you know, have around its shoulders and uh, used to pull things. Uh, and uh, hosts, Lord of hosts, what's parties got to do with the Lord? You know, that's what I would think of when I think about a host, you know. She's a great hostess. He's a great host, meaning, you know, this is a person that knows how to really lay out a great spread for guests. But hosts, when we talk about the Lord of hosts, the host is the army of the Lord. The Lord of hosts means that the Lord has a, a military operation <laughs> that he oversees and marshals and directs uh, against his enemies. So our God fights. Now, one of the things that uh, we can say about the Lord when he fights is he resorts to shock and awe. You remember the campaign of shock and awe in the, in the Gulf War, right? Basically intended to send the message, you don't want to mess with us because we have the power to completely wipe you out if we so choose. Uh, well, that's the kind of thing we see alluded to here. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. And then do what? Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send your arrows and rout them. So we'd like you, Lord, to, to roll up your sleeves, flex your muscles, and let the bad guys know that the party is over and that uh, they better flee. But is that always the way that God fights? One of the things that I think is uh, worth uh, studying is God's tactics uh, when it comes to fighting. And one of the things to keep in mind is that what the Lord is fighting uh, is no match for him. And that's what we see alluded to in verses 3 and 4. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And when God fights, sometimes he, does so, uh, he fights in such a way so as to reinforce the truth that we are no match. We're wisps. We're insubstantial. I think one of the things that, like I noted, is wonderful to see as you go through Scripture and, and, and uh, study the, the times in which God fights for His people and delivers them without their involvement, is there's a kind of psyops that God employs. Now, psychological operations is what I'm referring to, but let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. And what I think it does is it brings to the surface just what 
you know, human beings are and what God is dealing with when he fights. Remember Gideon, the Midianites? Remember, remember that episode? So here's this guy. He is scared to death. In fact, he's so scared of the Midianites, he's, he's threshing, you know, grain in a, in a wine press. In other words, he's out of sight. And you've got this wine press so that you've got like this, uh, you know, large container where the grapes would be located and a bunch of people during, you know, harvest season would be tramping out the, the vintage, right, where the grapes of wrath are stored. <laughs> now you get the, the image. But there's no grapes in there. It's just empty and he's hiding in there and you can just see the grain just He's threshing, tossing the grain into the air to allow the wind to separate the wheat and the chaff, and then the grain falling back down to the ground. He's afraid that uh, if the Midianites see what he's up to, they'll come by and say, okay, time to give us your milk money. <laughs> it's time for you to give us what you got there. So he's hiding. And then the angel of the Lord comes and addresses him and says, oh, mighty man of valor. He's like, who are you talking to? Me? And then uh, over the course of the next few chapters in the story, you actually see the Lord sort of, you know, sort of getting him, him prepared for the conflict that he's about to enter. And then what, is, what, what, what occurs? Well, as soon as you know, Gideon is able to marshal a large fighting force, the Lord then winnows it down, almost like he's threshing out the wheat from the chaff. And in the end, there's just 300 guys facing this incredibly, you know, numerous foe. And then the fun begins. The Lord says, okay, this is how we're going to fight, guys. I want you all to get a torch and a clay jar and a trumpet. This is how we're going to win. You're like, what? These guys have swords. No, this is how you're going to do it. So what happens? Sun goes down, right? The uh, Israelites, Gideon's army, surround the Midianites. And what they have is lit torches in clay jars, which means you can't see the light because you know, it's burning under that cover. And they've got these you know, trumpets. And then on cue, they smash the jars. All of the lights can be seen. And then they blow their trumpets and they shout a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And guess what happens? The Midianites freak out. They come out of their tents and kill each other, mistaking each other for the enemy. And they're just watching this happen. Can you, can you believe that? This is what I mean when I'm referring to you know, human beings as just shadows, mere breath. To God, he doesn't even need to raise a sword or send an arrow. He just lets the wicked destroy themselves by exercising their own wickedness that they intended to direct toward the people of God against themselves. And this is the way it happens again and again in Scripture. God delivers us in surprising ways that we can't predict, and, and in ways we didn't ask for. We're looking for the shock and awe, the smoking mountains, you know, the lightning, the arrows. And then the next thing you know, the Berlin Wall just falls down on its own. That sort of thing. That's the kind of God we serve, and that's how God fights. God's judgments are merciful, by the way. Have you thought about that? I know that when we think about God's judgments, we think about being on the receiving end of those judgments. But uh, there are others who are on the receiving end in a different way. Think about it this way. 
Uh, when we think about the martyrs that are referred to in the book of Revelation in chapter 6, they say this, Then he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? God's mercy is, is demonstrated in his judgments. There's no deliverance without judgment. Victims, in order to be delivered, need to have the oppressor judged. Justice and judgment are good things. Now, when you're on the receiving end, you know, they don't seem like good things, but when you're on the receiving end in the other sense, as I'm noting, they are very good things. And when we're delivered by God, we have a reason to sing. And that's what we see here, uh, referred to in verses 9 and 10. This is an interesting thing to think about David. David, the singing king. You know, he's like a troubadour, court troubadour in the court of God, who is the true king. And he sings the praises of the true king. He says, I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon the ten-stringed harp I will play to you, who gives victories to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. Now, what's the goal? When we think about the peaceable kingdom and the fact that the peace that we have uh, in Christ uh, comes at a great price, uh, our God who fights for us actually entered into the world in the person of uh, our, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to suffer and die for us, and through that suffering and death, uh, achieve the victory that we couldn't win for ourselves through the resurrection. What's the, what's the outcome of all that? What are we looking for? We're looking for the peaceable kingdom. Now, let me read to you a description of that peaceable kingdom. It begins in verse 12. May our sons in their youth be like plants full-grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and tens of thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Now, there are some interesting things to note about this. One of the things to note is we live in a world today where it's all about the individual. You know, there are preachers out there who talk about your best life now, right? And it's as though the church is just the instrument by which you are to sort of hear about how to get that best life now. But what you have here is a celebration of common goods. Verse 15, uh, blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. So we're saved to be God's people. And there's a fruitfulness. It's all about fruitfulness. There's some sense in which, uh, because of God's blessings, we see increase in every respect, in our homes, uh, in our economic activities. Uh, we enjoy uh, the fruits that, uh, that we have a right to enjoy 
because God has used us to bring them about. So the last battle, the last battle ends with the peaceable kingdom. It ends with this marvelous picture of peace. And this is what we're longing for. This is what we're hoping to enjoy uh, in the kingdom of God as it's fully uh, realized uh, in God's great plan of salvation. It's a marvelous film. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Seven Samurai, Akira Kurosawa. Have you ever seen that film? It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's about, well, Seven Samurai, right? But the story revolves around a, a village, a Japanese village that's uh, subject to ban banditry. There are these guys who come and pillage their, the village on a regular basis. And the villagers are, are farmers. They don't know how to defend themselves. And so they, they collect a little bit of money and they go out and they look for some samurai who are out of work and need, needing uh, something to do. And they find seven guys. And the seven samurai come to the village and wouldn't you know, uh, they are successful. They deliver the village from uh, the oppression of the bandits. But at the very end, you have this uh, sort of poignant scene in which uh, the samurai know that their job is done and they've got nothing else to do and the village is singing and working and enjoying the peaceable state of affairs that were made possible by the samurai. And the samurai really kind of want to join in the fun. <laughs> they want to be part of that. That's really the point. The battle wasn't the point. The battle was just something that had to be conducted in order to get to the real point of it all, which was the peaceable kingdom. Marvelous picture. I encourage you to watch Seven Samurai. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a film that uh, just about every red-blooded American boy will love. But uh, we don't find ourselves in that situation at the present, right? We find ourselves in the middle of the fight. We find ourselves in a situation that we wish we didn't have to be, to be in. And I think some of the time uh, we, you know, because of our longing for the end of the story to be, you know, sort of behind us and we can enjoy the peaceable kingdom now, uh, we just don't want to think about the fact that we're surrounded by enemies and that, that, you know, the Christian faith is a fighting religion. We don't want to think about that kind of stuff. We just rather that it wasn't the case, but it is the case. Now, in the meantime, even though we have to fight, we should also sow the seed so that we have something to enjoy in the peaceable kingdom when the harvest is, is conducted. But I'm reminded of a particular conversation that occurs in The Lord of the Rings. Now, you know, I'm a Tolkien guy. You know, I have to like bring in something from, you know, Tolkien every once in a while. But there's this marvelous conversation between Frodo, the ring bearer, and Gandalf, the wizard. And Frodo expresses the sentiments that you and I feel a lot. And this is how the conversation goes. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. I wish it need not have happened in my time. Do you feel that way when you watch the news? I wish this wasn't happening in my time. <laughs> I wish I lived in some other time when this sort of thing wasn't happening. And then Gandalf says, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have is to decide what to do with the time that is given us. We are called to be faithful in this time. I don't have an ability to see the future. I'm not a Nostradamus. I remember a, 
an, an elder at one of the churches I served who said, and neither was he. And it's true. But, you know, things could get worse. And sometimes, you know, depending on what is in the news, I kind of feel like it's inevitable that things are going to get worse. But maybe not. I don't know. But either way, we need to do the best we can with the time that we're given and rely upon the Lord and trust Him. Tell ourselves the truth and tell other people the truth as well. And watch God deliver us again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, help us to be faithful even in a situation where we are distressed by the lack of faith we see around us. And help us, Lord, to rely on you for the deliverance only you can provide. In Christ's name, amen.